Amen, amen, and good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see you. I had a great time being outside these last two weeks at Sage Park, but when I heard it was going to be 97 today, I was like, good time to go back, back in, indoors. Okay. Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. Jesus rules. He's the king of all creation. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of earth. He's always been the king. He's the king now, and he will always be the king. Jesus reigns. And you might be thinking, well, not according to what I've been reading lately, not according to what I've heard lately, not according to what people in my life have been saying lately, not according to, I don't know if anyone reads the newspaper anymore, but not according to the newspaper it's saying that, not according to the news station it's not saying that. In fact, I've never heard the news station say that. But maybe it's time to tune into a different station, <laughs> a heavenly one. We're going to read Psalm 2 today, but before we get there, I have a bit of background to give you. So, we're in our summer in the Psalms. We're looking at a different psalm every week. The Psalms are a collection of songs and poetry that were sung both individually and collectively as the Israelite nation worshipped the Lord together. They are composed of all kinds of different topics, including, I think I have a slide here, of some of the different royal psalms, Wisdom Psalms, Lament Psalms, which I noted and always note that a third of all of the Psalms are Lament Psalms because life is hard and he's teaching us how to deal with that, how to grieve well, how to approach God in our sorrow and our suffering. We have Lament Psalms. We have Psalms of Thanksgiving, Psalms of Confession, again, both individually and communal, different topics of the Psalms. But what I pointed out to you last week as we looked at Psalm 1 is that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together form the introduction to all of the rest of the Psalms. So there's 150 Psalms broken into five books, and the first two Psalms, 1 and 2, are the introduction to the rest of the Psalms. So it's not just a randomly collected and compiled poetry and songs. There's purpose to it. It's inspired. It's the Word of God. And we talked about last week, Psalm 1 is essentially about striving to follow God's law. That's what Psalm 1 is all about. Striving to follow God's law, God's Word. And then today, Psalm 2 is basically about waiting for God's Messiah. And when you put those two things together, what is the Psalms? What's it about? Striving to follow God, to obey His Word, as we await God's Messiah. (laughs) Beautiful. There's the meaning. There's the picture. that As we go through the Psalms, with all the highs and the lows and all the raw emotions and the crying out to God and the wisdom Psalms and Thanksgiving Psalms and Psalms of Confession, it all falls under that umbrella. Strive to follow him, but don't forget, we're waiting for the king. We're waiting for the Messiah. Psalm 2 is Psalm 1 was the wisdom Psalm. Psalm 2 is a royal or a messianic Psalm. And I got to tell you something about this. (laughs) Uh, which I learned that has always stuck with me, and I hope you remember it too. Psalm 2 is a royal or a messianic psalm, which means it has to do with the king, the Davidic king, and also has to do with waiting for that future king that would reign forever, the Messiah. It's both. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the Israelite people compiled the Psalter, 150 psalms, put them together. They did that during a time of exile. So they're out of the land. There's no king on the throne. 
the, the promise that they were given first to David in 2 Samuel 7, there would always be a descendant of David ruling as king on the throne for his people. And so they're in exile, they're in Babylon, they're away from the land, and instead of being embarrassed about the Psalms that have to do with the king, with the Messiah, they put the Psalms that have to do with the Messiah and the king in important places throughout the Psalter, as if to emphasize, put one in the introduction, right, in strategic places throughout it to say, we haven't lost hope, we haven't lost faith, even when it doesn't seem to, to make sense, there's no king on the throne, we believe somehow the king is going to reign. So, again, we're going to get to Psalm 2 in a second, but I want to give you a little bit more background here. The promise was given to David in 2 Samuel 7. There would always be a descendant of him on the throne, line of David. There would always be one. And so these Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, which, by the way, are quoted 25 times collectively in the New Testament, either directly or indirectly referring to Christ, could have been read at the time of the coronation of the next king of Israel as if to say, this is the one who's leading God's people, who has that relationship as described in 2 Samuel 7, as a father has with a son, God would discipline the king, God would bless the people through the obedience or the disobedience of that king. And so when they read that psalm at the coronation of the next Davidic king, it would be a psalm of blessing, of hope that God has this unique relationship with this king who is ruling over his people. So it could fit, very fitting to speak this over the next human king in Israel. But at the same time, they had hope for the coming Messiah. And there's hints in this psalm, too, of aspects that have to do with the Davidic king of ruling over the nation of Israel, but also pointing to the king to come that would rule not just over one nation, not just over one people, not just over one time and one place, but forever over the whole world, over all nations, the ends of the earth are your possession. Jesus is the son of David. Yes, the line of David traces it back. He's also and always has been the Son of God, God the Son. So a little bit of background. Now we're going to jump into actually reading Psalm 2 and talking about it. Here's what it says. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2. So here's, here's the bottom line for Psalm 2. Rebelling against God's Messiah does not end well. Amen. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Rebelling against God's Messiah does not end 
well. So here's where we're gonna take that, the direction, the roadmap today. We hear at least three voices in this psalm. Did you catch them? At least three voices. We're gonna talk first the voice of the nations in verses one to three. A voice, as we see, of rebellion. Secondly, we hear the voice of the Lord in verses four to nine, both the Father and the Son. The voice of the Lord, verses four to nine. Why is it futile? Why is it a bad idea to rebel against God's Messiah? We're gonna hear about it. Then there's a third voice, a voice of warning. I think we can rightly say the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, how are you gonna to respond to this? And we see that in verses 10 to 12. So first, we hear the voice of the nations. Let me remind you, verses one to three. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what's happening? The nations, generally speaking, the rulers, the kings, generally speaking, have a certain mindset and a certain motivation. What was the mindset? Well, we see it. He tells us in verse 1, they rage. Why do they rage and why do they plot in vain? The word rage here denotes pride. It denotes a kind of restiveness, a impatience, an unwillingness to be controlled by God and his Christ. A hatred against God rooted in pride. They plot. Fun fact, this word plot is the same word used in Psalm 1 for the word meditate. Remember we talked about meditate? It's not emptying your mind and trying to escape from the world. Meditating is actually focusing on something. It's engaging with it, thinking about it, chewing on it. What are they meditating on? It says the nations are not meditating on the word of God, delighting in the law of the Lord and all of that, but instead thinking about, actively engaging with how are we going to get rid of God and his Messiah. That's the mindset. It says the kings of the earth, as if that rageful mindset climbs the ladder of the highest positions in authority across the world, across the nations, to try to get rid of God and his Messiah. They set themselves against him. That's military language, formation of lines. It's a war. And they want to be warring against God. That's the mindset we see in verses 1 to 2. So now, why? What's the motivation? What's the reason? Why would they do that? Why would they think to do that? Why do we think to do that? Verse 3, here it is. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's the picture. Because of God and his Messiah, this is us, nations are saying. Here's what we need to do. Break free. Break the bonds. Break the chains. It's an idea of a perception of freedom. We need to get rid of the commands. we got to get rid of the authority. We have to free ourselves from God and from his ruler, his Messiah. That's the motivation. Let's burst their bonds apart, cast their cords away from us. We don't want his design for the world. We don't want his design and his plan for humans. We want to make our own rules. We want to be our own people. We'll decide what's right and what's wrong. Does this sound familiar at all? Have you ever heard something like that? Maybe not quite as drastic or maybe more drastic, actually, than what I'm saying. There's nothing new about this motivation. There's nothing new about this mindset. We hear it all of the time. It's not new when you read through scripture. You see it through redemptive history from the Garden of Eden. 
They believe the lie that God's holding out, that God doesn't have their best interest in mind. You want to be like him? You got to disobey him. You want to be free? Don't do what he tells you to do. And we believe it. And we buy it, hook, line, and sinker. Throughout scripture, we see examples. The one that came to mind is the Tower of Babel, where it says specifically, what was the motivation? Let's make a name for ourselves. In stark contrast to the next chapter, Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Whew, what a difference. We living to make our own name great? Or are we saying, Lord, in submission to you, oh, what a, what a drastic difference there, that he will decide that. And humility coming before the king of creation, the king of heaven, the king of earth. It's not us. It's him. It's him. The earth does not love her rightful monarch, but clings to the usurper's sway. (laughs) I got that quote from somewhere. I don't remember. It's a good one. (laughs) They plot, it says, in vain in verse 1. In vain they try to stop God. In vain we try to stop God's Messiah, God's plan for us, for this world. It's in vain. I wanted to give one example of when we, we see multiple times throughout history that somebody, a king, a ruler, a people, they try to get rid of all semblances of God, get rid of God's people. I'm sure you can think of multiple examples of that. Wipe out the Jewish people. Try to wipe out Christianity time and time again. There's, there's a metal inscription that I saw uh, from Roman, not in person, I read about it, (laughs) from the Roman emperor Diocletian, in which he says that part of his legacy was that he extinguished the name of Christians on the earth. It's like part of his legacy. If that were the case, I mean, would we be here right now? No. Did he do it? Did he wipe out all of Christianity? No. As long as the tomb of Jesus is empty, there will be no tomb for Christianity. You can't bury the living. Can't do it. The living have no tomb. It's in vain that the nations rage and plan to try to stop, prevent, change God and his Messiah and, in fact, his church that is spreading, continuing to spread around the world. But we hear the voice of the rebellion, the voice of the rebelling nations in verses 1 through 3. But the truth is, rebelling against God's Messiah does not end well. So let's listen to that next voice the voice of the Lord in verses 4 to 9. In verses 4 to 9, we hear the voice of the Father in verses 4 to 6, the Father's response to the nations. And then in verses 7 through 9, we hear the voice, a different voice, still the Lord, the voice of the Son, and specifically the victory that the Son states. Okay. So the Father's response in verses 4 to 6, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, Father sees it. This is the the voice of the nations rebelling against him, wanting to stop him and his Messiah. What's his response? I'll tell you what it isn't. He's not biting his nails. He's not pacing the heavenly hallways thinking, what am I going to do? Look at them rebelling. What are they going to do? Talking like Michael the archangel. What are we going to do about this? Let's set up a heavenly army to oppose them right now. He doesn't do any of those things. He's not nervous. In fact, the first thing he does, he says, he doesn't even start. He just laughs. He laughs. Let me read to you a quote by the Treasury of David, 
which is my favorite commentary on the Psalms written by Charles Spurgeon. And it says this about the fact that God laughs at this. The greatest confederacies amongst kings and peoples and their most extensive and vigorous preparations to defeat his purpose, to injure his servants, are in his sight altogether insignificant and worthless. He looks at their poor and puny efforts, not only with uneasiness, without uneasiness, or without fear, but he laughs at their folly. He treats their impotence with derision. See what he's saying? The kings of the earth, the rulers of the plans, they're no match for the king of kings. It says in Isaiah 40, if you want a little taste of the power, the sovereignty of God, check out Isaiah 40. The nations of the earth are like a drop in a bucket, he says. Like dust on the scales that you don't even see on them. It's not a humorous laugh, God laughing at the nations, the king's plans to try to conquer him and his Messiah. It's not a, ha, that's a good joke, I'm going to laugh at that. This is a wrathful laugh. This is a divine ridicule of the foolishness of that decision to go down that road. Remember Psalm 1, those two roads, the road to perishing, road to blessing? He laughs at it, a divine ridicule kind of laugh. And I thought about this, I thought about the kind of laugh I might hear a parent do. Somebody says they're going to harm their kid, their child. You think you're going to actually defeat his Messiah and God? Like that kind of laugh. Huh, try. Okay. He laughs, and then he speaks. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So at the height of their rebellion, at the height, at the loudest of the voices, he responds by saying, as for me... What have I done? I have set my king. What is he saying here? Essentially, he's saying, it's too late. It's too late. What you're trying to prevent to happen has already taken place. It's already over. It's done. Why is it futile? It's over. He's done it. His king has been set. All efforts are futile against him. And that's what the son, this next voice in verses 7 through 9, is about to affirm. The voice of the son about his victory, about what was told him by the father and him affirming it, the son's victory. Verses 7 through 9, he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, I said at the beginning, this could very well be some of these royal or messianic psalms spoken over and, and at the coronation of the next Davidic king. However, this psalm in particular, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, it's looking beyond. It's giving promise. It's, there's something unique happening here to the ruler that it's talking about. The king of Israel was promised and told of ruling over this area, this nation of Israel, place. But now it's saying it will give him the ends of the earth for his possession. It's unique. Jesus is the son of David, but Jesus is also the son of God. And he was God the son before his ministry started, before his coronation at his baptism, and he was God the Son even before the incarnation. In fact, 
there are examples in the Old Testament of Jesus appearing. Did you know that? They're called Christophanies. This is a teaser for Advent, okay? We got new Advent coming up, not new, just we're going to be focusing on appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament leading up to the incarnation. You excited for that a little bit? I hope so. Okay. So, he's unique. The Son of God claims his victory. The ends of the earth are his possession. He's the ruler of all of heaven and all of earth. All authority have been given to me, has been given to me, he says in Matthew 28. It's the voice of the Son of God and the Son of David. And this psalm, Psalm 2, of what is his, was spoken over him through his ministry at the time he was here and concerning him for the future, the fact that he is that Davidic king that's going to rule with a rod of iron over all nations. So it's spoken over him at his baptism in Mark chapter 1. The father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's spoken over him at his transfiguration. We'll use Mark again for the example, Mark chapter 9, when Jesus revealed some of the glory of his divinity to Peter and James and John, glory that was always there but hidden and concealed. While that's happening on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. <laughs> and at the resurrection and the exaltation in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, they quote Psalm 2 as if to say the reign of Jesus didn't end like it did for every other Davidic king at the end of their life. It continues forever. And then in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 19, according to about the second coming of Christ, his reign not just now but forever in the future is his, where Psalm 2 is quoted. And I'll give you the one example, Revelation 2, 26 through 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I want to mention, this is not a new revelation that just happened at this time when Revelation was written. It's been the, go back to Daniel. Go back millennia before that. In Daniel 2, the kingdom of God, the last kingdom that will reign forever, over this world is not any human kingdom. It's the, it's the kingdom of God in which Christ will reign and rule forever over all nations. Christ will defeat his enemies. The picture it gives of a rod of iron, usually a king would have a rod, a staff, cane of some kind to display some kind of emblem of authority. It would usually be gold, some fancy metal to show power and wealth and all that. He says rod of iron. He's emphasizing power. And there was a ritual that was done, I believe it was started by the Egyptians, where they would take pots, earthen pots, these vessels, clay pots, and they would bring them out in front of the army, and they would write the names of the nations they're about to go conquer, and they would take, uh, I don't know, a staff or something, and just break through them as if to say, we're about to dash to pieces our enemies coming up here. Jesus doesn't have to use a rod Jesus can speak with the power, the word of his mouth. He's a consuming fire. He created through speaking, and he can defeat his enemies 
simply by speaking it into existence. Rebelling against his Messiah does not end well. We heard the voice of the nations. We heard the voice of the Lord. But now let's hear the, the voice of warning in verses 10 to 12. Now, therefore, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, in light of everything we just read and talked about? O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what's the warning? What's the response he gives? He says, be wise, be warned. Look, with any instruction, there's lots of good instruction in life, how we can do better. Instruction about your job, instruction about how to be a better parent or son or daughter or family. Whatever. Instruction everywhere, all over the place. Instruction that has to do with salvation, the saving of your soul. Shouldn't we perk up a little bit more to listen to it, to take heed, to submit to it, to want to hear it, to know it, to believe it, to embrace it, to choose life? He says, therefore, be wise. Be warned, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. It's the same kind of words that were used to describe Mary when she gets to the empty tomb and she encounters Jesus and she can hardly believe he's alive. And she leaves to go tell the disciples mixed feelings of fear and with joy. Fearing the, the right authority and power of this king. Is he safe? No. <laughs> Nobody's good. Fear, but also with joy, excitement to serve him, to live for him, to know him more, to know him more. Look, the lie that the nations believe and that every single person in this room, including myself, have believed, not just in the past, but still at times today or in our lives, to believe the lie that serving God is something that needs to, we need to be freed from that we need to rebel and throw off the chains in order to truly be free. It's not by serving the true God. We've all believed that in some way or another. We all struggle with that, right? Sometimes daily. I don't want to believe. I want to do my own thing. I was trying to think of a specific example in my own life, and there's a lot of those. But I'll tell you, I didn't want to believe and to follow that you got to wait until marriage. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I wanted to say, forget that. That sounds, like, that sounds like the opposite of freedom, God, to wait for that. <laughs> I'm sure you can think of plenty of examples in your own life where we just, we don't want to believe it. We, we think that it's bondage. But here's, it's a lie. It always has been. It's a lie that serving him is slavery that, needs to be, that we need to be freed from. He created life. He created us. He knows I heard a preacher saying recently, if we think that freedom is found in rebellion against the true God, that's like saying a fish is really free when it's snatched out of the water. Or that the train is free when you derail it. Or the tree, let's free the tree by uprooting it. That's not freedom. That's not freedom. So what do we do? Here's what he says. Look back at Psalm 2. Kiss the sun. This is not a romantic kiss. It's not a pucker up. It's an act of submission. It's the opposite kiss that Judas gave in the garden of betrayal. 
It's the kind of kiss that wants to receive instruction from the Son of God in submission. And I got to point out, fun fact, this word son at the end of Psalm 2 is not the Hebrew word for son. It's this unexpected. He said son earlier in Psalm 2, the Hebrew word, what you would expect. Almost all of the Old Testament, most of it is written in Hebrew. So why is this word son in in Aramaic? It's giving the idea of foreignness, as in he's not just the son, he's not just the king of one nation at one time, he is the king of the world. Submit to him. That's where freedom, believe it or not, is truly found. But then he says something else. It doesn't end well for those who don't submit to him. He says, his wrath is quickly kindled. What is, he, what is he trying to tell us here? Because we see time and time again throughout the Bible, he is a patient God. He waited, read Genesis 15, 400-something years before he finally judged the Canaanite people before the Israelites went in and took the land. 400 years of additional patience before their sin reached a certain point where it was time to judge. He's a patient God. So many examples of that. So what is he getting at when he says his wrath is quickly kindled? Here's what I believe he's saying. His anger can ignite at any moment. So let me say it another way. How long are you willing to roll the dice to live in a way that rejects the reign of King Jesus? How long are you willing to say, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to try to make my own name great, like they said in Tower of Babel. I'm going to listen to instruction apart from God. I'm not going to submit my... How long are you willing to roll that? How how long are you willing to take that chance before the wrath of God is revealed, as the scripture says, against all the ungodly? How long? His wrath is quickly kindled. Listen, I don't want that wrath. I don't want that wrath for myself, and I... I don't want it for any of you. So listen carefully to this. If one sin, just think about, stop thinking about the nations for a second. Stop thinking about the rulers of the nations. Think about your own life. If one sin, one, was enough to get Adam and Eve cast out of the garden. If one sin, these are just some examples, (laughs) where we see the severity of what sin leads to, If one sin of Achan taking, stealing something that wasn't his led to him and his family being stoned to death. If one sin of Ananias, Sapphira, Acts chapter 6 of lying led to death on the spot. If one sin of Uzzah of disobeying the instructions of how to carry the sacred artifact of the Ark of the Covenant with God's commands whole, that's a whole separate thing, but disobeyed the instructions and was struck down in that moment. If one sin leads to death, if one sin has those kinds of ramifications, it's true that the wages of sin is death. What we earn by sinning is death, physical death, spiritual death, the wrath of God. And when we see, if we saw with his eyes what sin actually does to ourselves and to others, whether we understand it or not, whether we understand it by the end of our life or not, when we rebel against God's design 
for how to live, when we rebel against, not delight in his word and want to submit and receive instruction from him and live in a way that we decide, the way that that hurts other people and ourselves and God, we would not along with what it deserves. The wages of sin is death. It's death. Do you need to sit in that for a little while? Do you need to think about that, to meditate on that, engage with it? Because what are you going to do with the mountain of sin you've piled up against God? What am I going to do, not just with the one sin, the mountain in my own life? Where do we go? Who do we turn to? Look at the last part of the last verse. <laughs> Blessed are all. What does it say? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is, one, there is one place to turn. There is one person to go to with the mountain of sins that we've accumulated that rightly deserve the judge of all the earth to do something about. And he says, blessed. Remember that word from Psalm 1? Those who are going to receive comfort that they don't deserve, satisfaction that they don't deserve, are going to see the face of God, or we're going to inherit the earth, and all of these blessings that we don't deserve, but because Jesus delighted in God's word, because Jesus, everything he did prospered, because Jesus lived the perfect life, didn't just die for us, he lived for us, because he did, we can look forward to the blessings that God can't wait to give to his people. Because of him, he's our refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in Jesus. I'm just going to pray. That's it. Father, Lord, we, we hear so many lies. You say in part of the Lord's Prayer, that your name, may your name be holy, set apart, hallowed be your name, because we live in a world that constantly does not do that. We've heard so many things that are not true about you. God, would you help us to know the truth about you, about your nature, about your character, about your goodness and your mercy? and your fair justice, and your love, and your wisdom. May we know the truth about ourselves and our need for you. In all, Lord, that we need to be forgiven. And may we come to you, our one place of refuge, our one place of hope, our only hope, our King. May we turn to you, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray, I pray, God, if anyone has not found that refuge, they would stay, they'd want to talk about it, pray, come pray with me or somebody here, Lord God, I pray that. And God, I, was, I just kept thinking about this morning, how grateful for, we are, Lord, for the volunteers downstairs and teaching our children the truth, teaching our kids about who you are. 
God, giving them the opportunity before they face the countless lies they're going to hear in their life to see somehow, even in imperfect ways, people that know you, that love you, and that care for them and want to lead and point them to you. Thank you, God. Thank you for your church. Thank you, Jesus, that you reign. Amen.